0: Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we are not a bible people. We thank you that you have given us your word in our own language, in our own native tongue, so that we can know you more fully and love you more deeply. And that's my prayer for us, Lord, as we sit under your word this morning, that it would grow our love for you. When we see more fully how you have taken the initiative to give us new life, to make us your children, I pray, Lord, that it would warm our hearts this Advent season and that it would make us want to live as children of the light as we anticipate the day when we're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Smile upon us as we seek to hear and to heed your word this morning. I ask this for your glory, Lord. Help me as I preach. Lord, help me to depend not on myself, but on you. Just give me a joyful dependence now on your word and give your people grace to to listen attentively and to receive this for what it is, the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I was captivated by a story that was brought to my attention um, from the Washington Post. The Washington Post story really captivated me because it um, captures an experiment that they decided to do, and this experiment is then detailed in this article <clears throat> that I read, and uh, the experiment surrounded one main person. His name is Joshua Bell. Maybe some of you have heard his name. He is a world-class violinist. He is probably the greatest musician the United States has and maybe one of the greatest in the world. And they decided as an experiment that they would ask Joshua Bell if he would be willing to take his world-class talent that has been showcased in the most elite orchestra halls throughout the world, and bring it to the metro station of Washington, D.C. They want him to, in a sense, be a street musician for the morning, during rush hour at the metro station in Washington, D.C. People, and what they want to see in the experiment, is they want to see what people will do. They want to see if that place is just filled with beauty, if people will slow down enough to really hear, to really listen to it. So there you have him in a ball calf, normal clothes, his violin case open for tips. And you have this man who just weeks before played at the Library of Congress and in the weeks upcoming is going to play a capital tour throughout the capitals of Europe. There you have Joshua Bell in the metro station with this $3.5 million violin in hand. And he decided when he agreed to do this that he was going to do it right. That he is going to play his heart out. He's going to pick some of the hardest, most beautiful pieces ever composed. And he was going to play it with all of his heart in those moments. And so the experiment began, and he played it out over an hour of playing his heart out. And he was interviewed afterwards, and one of his big takeaways was this. He said one of the hardest moments for him were the awkward moments between his pieces. This guy's used to getting up on stage to a standing ovation every single time. He f- would finish a piece, and there would be a, just a, a lull between the piece. No applause. No recognition. In fact, he actually put it this way. He said, quote, I'm surprised at the number of people who don't pay attention at all, as if I'm invisible. And this whole thing was actually, you could actually watch the video of it. Um, they had a hidden camera, so they captured everything. Literally over a 1,000 people passed within earshot, and some of them within a few feet of Joshua Bell playing at the metro station. And really, only like two people stopped in any kind of meaningful way. One of them was a man who himself, up until 18 years old, was a violinist. And so he knew the instrument well. And he didn't even know it was Joshua Bell. He was kind of listening from a distance, but he was just captivated. He had to stop everything. And he was utterly bewildered that no one else was stopping. I mean, he was hearing what he was hearing. And his ears were filled with so much beauty, he could not believe other people were not stopping. There's one other person that stopped it was a woman and uh, she came toward the very end of his performance and uh, she happened to recognize him because she was at the Library of Congress concert and so she kind of did a double take and could she could recognize him because his face was kind of freshly minted on her mind and she's sitting there with a grin for the rest of the time like is this seriously happening right now? That's Joshua Bell. <laughs> And uh, the woman said this, quote, Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping and not even looking, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! <laughs> I wouldn't do that to anybody. I was thinking, what kind of a city do I live in that this could happen? What kind of a city do I live in that this could happen? This is part of why this story captivated me is because that is a penetrating question. In fact, that question really resonates deeply in my heart, but I can't help but ask the question a little bit differently than she did. My question would go a little bit more like this. What kind of a world do we live in that the eternally divine word of God, the one who made snails and stars, eyeballs and eardrums, Coral reefs and vascular systems, sunsets and subatomic particles. What kind of a world do we live in that the one who made all things could come into his creation and be treated worse than Joshua Bell at the metro station? That's my question. Like the response to Joshua Bell, most treated Jesus like he was invisible. But some, a few, for some reason, couldn't help but stop and be drawn into the music. They can't help but be taken up with the beauty of Jesus, the light of the world. Now, these are wildly different responses, aren't they? That people can have to Jesus, just like they had to Joshua Bell, But when it comes to responding to Jesus, this is not an experiment. Okay? People could come and go and be like, oh, I miss Joshua Bell. You miss Jesus, you miss eternity, you miss heaven. This is not some experiment. We need to get to the bottom of this. Really, our text has a burning question. In it and the question could be stated negatively and positively. The burning question is this: why do some reject the light? But then you can say it positively why do some receive the light? Why do some reject the light? Why do some re- receive the light? They're, they're deeper beneath the surface questions that I would like us to get to this morning. So when we think about this question, why does some reject the light? I want to set the table a little bit. We're looking at verses 9 through 11 first. And uh, there's a phrase I want us to latch onto right away. And the word, uh, sorry, uh, that's Christmas Eve. Sorry, I don't want to go there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little sneak peek. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That phrase was coming into the world. Here we're talking about the incarnation right? We're talking about when Jesus took on human flesh, which is what this Advent season is all about. And it's going to be explicit in verse 14, which I was just teasing a moment ago. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, right? So we're talking about Jesus coming, the true light coming into the world, the eternal God taking on human flesh. Now there's a simple observation I want to make in these verses, verses 9 through 11, because there's kind of a narrowing that happens as you go through the verse. It's kind of a broader statement that it gets really intentionally narrow. And as you kind of go through the verses, you kind of see, in some ways, you could say, um, an increasingly dramatic kind of response. Now, here's the observation. We start in a more general way. Um, from the, we talk about the world, creation. We're talking about creation in general and people in general, you know. So look at, Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, his creation, and specifically among the people in his creation. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, I'm not sure what to marvel at more. The fact that God came into his creation, or the fact that his creation didn't recognize God when he came. Something to marvel at. How could the world treat the light of the world like he's invisible? That's what we're being told in this text. He made the world, yet the world did not know him, did not recognize him, did not see him for who he is. But it doesn't stop there. You kind of see this narrowing that happens in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So his, he came to people in general, creation, into his creation, and to people in general, but then more specifically, he came to his own people, that is the Israelites, the Jewish people. He came to his own people, and there's a particularly sad note struck here. It's grievous. Their response It says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And the fact that they were his own people makes it all the worse. It's like these are his relatives. And it's like he spent years, as it were, sending pictures of himself. And each time he sent a picture, the resolution of it was clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And in case they weren't getting it, and couldn't recognize him, he was sending letters along with the pictures, right? the writings of the prophets, explaining what he would be like and how they would recognize him, when he would come. And verses 9 through 11 are saying that people should have known better, especially his own people. That's the point of verses 9 through 11. How could his own people not recognize him when he came? How could his own people be so inhospitable when Jesus has traveled so far to care for them? Why didn't they receive him? Why did they reject him when he came? And this is where I want to get to the deeper question because all that we've said so far, we just kind of set the table and say he came into his world, came into his creation, came among people in general, and he came to his own people in particular. If there's anybody that should recognize him, it's them. But by and large, they did not receive him. Instead, they rejected him. But I want to ask the deeper question, why? Why did they reject him? And here, I want to revisit for a moment that cave analogy I used last week. Do you remember that? That cave analogy I just used, it's, it's kind of a silly illustration, but I think it makes the point, is that when we are born into this world, we're born into sin, and so it's like living in a cave world, Right? Everything's underground. Everything's in the darkness with this vast tunnel system, thick walls in these caves, right? We don't know anything different. That's where we live. And and uh, I made the point that Jesus came as the light of the world. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And the point of him doing that was to be able to, as it were, explode a hole into the wall of the cave so that these darkness dwellers, darkness dwellers like us, could come out. There's only one way out, but the way is lit up, Right? People can come out of it. I want to come back to that analogy because I think it's really helpful here because when you're a darkness dweller, and I know what this was like to be one, darkness feels familiar. It feels comfortable. I mean, it's all you've ever known. Darkness is as natural as anything else when you grow up in a cave and your eyes have always been accustomed to darkness. And so the most radical thing to be confronted with would be light, right? And so have that cave analogy in your mind as I read John chapter 3. And I want to go to this text because I think it will shine light on this question that we're wanting to ask this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. And again, we're asking this question, why? do people reject the light? Starting in verse 19 of chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So, why do people reject the light? A couple answers to that question would be this. People, by nature, prefer darkness, not light. Because people love their sin. That's why it talks like works of evil. They love their sin, and so they prefer darkness. People ironically enough, feel safe in darkness. It's true. People feel safe in darkness, not the light, because the light exposes the state of hearts. So light feels foreign and threatening to darkness dwellers. The light exposes what people really love. That's what it does. Light exposes People's true loves, the true affections of hearts. People, put it this way, it's a little bit crass, but I think it makes the point, and I think it's very, very true. People don't want God to walk in on their love affair with sin. You want light to break in in that moment, in those moments? <clears throat> See, darkness allows people to feel like their sins are sufficiently covered. So darkness does. It provides a covering of sorts. It's a sense of security to people that have never known anything but darkness. Now, they feel like sins are sufficiently covered up, but are they? I mean, think of Psalm 139 when it says darkness is as light to him. God can see through darkness. See, people don't come to the light because at bottom, they don't want to. They have a deeper love, a deeper bond with sin. Now, just to be really direct, okay? If you don't receive Jesus, it's because what is forbidden is more familiar to you. If you don't receive Jesus, it's because you want other things more than Jesus. That's just the fact of the reality. That's just the fact of the matter. That's true for every human being apart from Christ. That was so true for me before I came to know Christ. The reason why I didn't come to the light is because uh, what was forbidden was more familiar to me and because um, I wanted other things. I loved other things more than I loved Jesus. Now, if you were to take that cave analogy, you could expand it a little bit. You could think about darkness dwellers, you know, in that realm of darkness as hoarders. Have you ever met a hoarder? Have you ever been into a hoarder's home? I don't really laugh about this because I feel like it's really tragic, actually. You try to love a hoarder and you're trying to help them get rid of stuff and they're just like, no, no, I need that. I need that. And you're just watching their life get choked out around them in a way that's so visual. It's just painful to watch. It's just like they they love their sin. They feel like they have to have it. They find a certain security. I can't part, No, I can't part with that. Like, it could be a stack of old newspapers. No, no. And they just got, they ha- have to keep it, you know? And I think this is a fitting way to expand this analogy because really, darkness dwellers, they don't want to, they don't want to part with their sin. And because their lives are so cluttered with the things that they really love, they can't even get out if they wanted to. Like, even a lot of the cave paths are blocked because this whole thing is being filled up with more and more. Sin and like the innkeeper, darkness dwellers say there's no room for the light. There's just no room. They can make plenty of room for sin, but can make no room for Jesus. So we ask the question, why do people reject the light? Simple answer is darkness dwellers love sin and favor darkness because it provides an ideal environment to keep living the way that they really want to live. Now, we could leave that point and go, ah, those darkness dwellers, those cave people, right? But I can't quite leave this point this quickly because I'm, I just feel like I felt a burden on my heart in preparing this text because the reality is um, in the context that we live in, There's a lot of people that are actually darkness dwellers, but don't realize it. There's a lot of people, a lot, most people around here are darkness dwellers, and they don't even know it. That burdens me tremendously, and I want it to burden you this morning, actually. I want us to actually think clearly and biblically about what we see because there's a lot more than meets the eyes. The thought that some of you in here could be actually darkness dwellers and not even know it is very painful to my heart. And I want to say some things here that I hope God will use. I pray that God will use to help every child of God here think more clearly, you know, about the nature of what it means to actually be in the light, to actually be saved, but also it might help someone here, that has actually been in the darkness and still in the darkness, but thinks they're in the light to actually see for the first time that they're actually in the darkness and need to follow that path out of the cave. And so um, this is what I want to say. I want to point out and start by asking this question. How many unbelievers that you know consciously reject Jesus? Like if you were to ask them, do you believe in Jesus? What would they say? They'd say, depending on where you live in the world, that question could be different. But I'm telling you, in this context, unless I'm just in la-la land, almost anybody you could talk to would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. People are not consciously rejecting Jesus, right? Many are in the darkness, but think that they are in the light. If you ask them, have you received Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? Their answer is, well, yes. Because in their minds, they're going, well, if I haven't rejected Jesus, then I must have accepted Jesus. Do you see the logic there? But that that's not biblical logic. Just because you haven't overtly rejected him with your life doesn't mean that you've received him in the biblical sense. This point is so important, and I'm afraid that many people are going to perish because they never grasp this at a heart level. That's why I'm taking the pains to press in on it a little bit. Uh, Many people understand the basic truths of the Bible. Like, for example, Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he came to save sinners, right? And if you believe in him, you'll go to heaven. Those are really important Bible points, aren't they? A lot of people would say, um, one, they would understand those basic truths. Two, they would actually affirm them, and they'd say, yes, I believe that. I believe that's true. I believe those facts are true. They would assent to those statements. The problem is that if that is all there is to one's faith, it's a counterfeit faith. In fact, I would take it one step further biblically and use the words of James chapter 2.19 paraphrasing and say, that's no more than a demon's faith. Because it says, even the demons believe and shudder. In fact, sadly, I think the demons probably grasp it more than a lot of people who profess Christ. They believe that Jesus died. They believe he's the Holy One of God. They believe he rose from the dead. And they're spending their entire lives trying to make sure other people don't get that at a heart level. So even the demons understand basic truths of the gospel. Even the demons would affirm the truthfulness of those truths. But they don't love them. They don't love Jesus. They don't have a living faith, a heartfelt appreciation for who Jesus is. They don't trust him enough to follow him. Do you see the difference? So, and this is something to to wrestle with. A veneer of godliness can be one of the best coverings for a Christless heart. Just having a simple veneer of godliness, kind of a little shell of godliness, even going to church, you know, like this can be one of the things that kind of, it's it actually allows people to go, well, I can put up this front, but really, underneath, there's no real love for Christ. It's a scary thing that people can put up a veneer of godliness right now and actually just as a way of protecting the fact that they have a Christless heart. It's scary in many ways. And this is why many of us find it a lot easier to share the gospel with people who have no religious background. Because when they have no religious background, you can tell them good news and be like, what? What? Like they might think you're a little crazy, and that's fine, you know? But like at least we have this conversation where you can start breaking it down as opposed to people that are more inoculated to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they go, Yeah, I've heard that since childhood. Yep, I assent to that. Yeah. Hasn't changed my life at all, but that's okay. It doesn't change anybody else's life around here. They know the basic content, they affirm it but they don't understand that a true saving faith is personal. It's personal. It's relational. It's not a prayer once prayed. It's not an aisle once walked. It's not a little water once sprinkled. It's not looking at Jesus through a glass. And it's not plugging him into some kind of formula. One has to personally rely upon Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. One has to depend upon him. Maybe an analogy will help. People have used these for a long time. Like, you know, it's one thing. I'm trying to to explain the nature of saving faith here, okay? You can have a chair, all right? So you take a chair. A person can go, yeah, I understand the chair. I understand that it's got four legs. I understand what it's for. I understand where you sit, you know? and I understand that it's meant to hold people. Then you could take it one step further where you go like, I actually believe that, that everything about that chair, and I believe that that chair will hold people. That's very different, knowing a lot about a chair, and even green with some basic facts about a chair, than actually sitting in it and putting your whole weight upon it. Okay? Another similar analogy would be like a parachute. Okay? This plane is going to crash. Right? The plane is going to crash. You could say, "Oh, yeah, I understand the basics of a parachute, right? It's in the pack. It's all packed up, right? You pull the cord. It expands. It it catches some of the air, and then it it brings you slowly to the ground." That wasn't a very sophisticated description <laughs> you know, of that, but uh, um, but they could even say, like, "Yeah, and I believe, just given how parachutes work, that if you were to put that on, that it would hold you." You say. Okay, that's great. But your plane is going to crash, and you can know a lot about parachutes. You can even think that it will hold you. But if you aren't willing to jump out of that plane and trust it, you don't really believe the parachute is going to hold you. There's a personal aspect of it, a a, a full reliance upon the Lord. And there are many people that are going to live their lives and die knowing A lot of facts about Jesus, even agreeing with those facts, but never putting their life in his care. And that's, that's one of my burdens this morning with this text is that you'd recognize like, wow, like try to understand, try to understand why people don't receive Jesus because you love your sin so much. You love darkness. It's more familiar. It's okay. We'll join the club. We were all there, right? But the burden is, is to make sure that you're not actually still in the cave. Right, that you're not actually still in the cave thinking that you're in the realm above, the realm of light. God is wanting to say to you this morning, and that might be you, and I just want to take time for you this morning. Like If you're there this morning and God is helping you see that you actually have a dead faith and not a living faith, I just want to invite you this morning to put your full trust in Jesus Christ and tell you this morning that if your life does not change, If you don't actually want to obediently follow Jesus, you're not a Christian. It's not a true faith. I want you to know that this morning. I want you to know that before it's too late. And I want to say, put on the parachute. Put on the parachute. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust fully in him. He will hold you. He will hold you. He will not fail you. And he says, if anyone comes to me, I will not cast him out. He will welcome you, even though you have rejected him. And there's a beautiful irony, I think, in a lot of ways in this passage. It says he comes to his own, and his own did not receive him. So they rejected him. And the most extreme form of that was them actually brutally beating and torturing Jesus Christ to death. But the irony is is that most extreme form of rejection was the groundwork for God's plan for our acceptance. Like the way that God made to accept us was through the rejection of his son, Jesus Christ. So in one sense, it's terrible news. In another other sense, it's glorious news. We have rejected him, but through his rejection, he's made a way to accept us. Receive that this morning. Come out of the cave if you haven't for real, because this is the time before it's too late. What a glorious time of year it would be to do it too, to recognize the light of the world for who he is. Lean in and listen to the music. There is a beauty in it if you will slow down. This is a tender invitation from the Lord Jesus to come into the light. You don't need to reject the light anymore. So we've seen why people reject the light. Now I want to turn and ask, well, why do people receive the light? That's another deep question to ask and to get to the bottom of. And as we've seen, many reject the light. And it strikes me in light of last week's sermon, when we were talking about uh, John the Baptist or John the witness, you could say, coming to bear witness to the light. Um, could you find a more eloquent you know, spokesman for the Lord Jesus, someone to introduce him to the world than, than John the Baptist? He was winsome in his witness, and he was humble, right? He was not the light, but he bore witness to the light. He's kind of a pattern for all of us to follow in our witness to the world. But point here is to notice that no matter how winsome someone's witness is, no matter how humble someone's attitude is in bringing the good news about Jesus, some will still reject the message. It's just true. And I say some, but probably most, because the gate is narrow and the way is hard, and few are they who find it. But there's many who follow the broad path to destruction. But while there's many, many people who do not receive Jesus but actually reject him, there are some that actually received the light. Some stop and take in the music. And so our text says, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it says, but whoever received him, Whoever believed in his name. So these two words, receiving and believing, like two sides of the same coin. Receiving is believing. Believing is receiving here in this context. We're talking about saving faith. It's very personal because it says, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, in his name, in his person, trusted in his person, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, just that personal saving faith. All who did truly receive him, or saved, who believed in his name. Now, notice the scope here, too. All. All who received him. But to all who did receive him. This is for all kinds of different people right here. Like, in that day, this would be an incredible thing to hear. In a day where it was been, it's been about the chosen people. And here it's being like, no, it's for Jew and Gentile. It's for all the peoples. It's for rich and it's for poor. It's for black, it's for white, right? It's for the educated, it's for the uneducated. It's for every strata of society. It's for all people. This is a gospel that has massive scope. It's all who believe that may come. If you'll believe, you can come. I love how Colossians 1 verse 13 puts it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Those who receive Jesus receive a new status. Did you notice that in the text? They receive a new status as the children of God. Those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And there is an implication here, isn't it? Is that before they received this right, Before he gave this to them, they were not children of God. He asks the question, is everybody a child of God? Well, in the sense that you, God gave you life and in the sense that he generally provides you, but not in this deeper sense that's being described here. Not everybody is part of the family of God. This is not a default position. It's something that's granted. It's a right that is bestowed. It's a status that we get to have by faith. In Jesus, as it says in Galatians 3, 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith in him we become sons of God. This is a new status as the children of God, and it's a gift. Just even slow down on the language there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave. So this is a gracious gift of God, and that he gives the right. It's a status that he bestows upon people. We're brought into the family circle. We're folded in to a group that we have never been part of before. This is precious news, isn't it? Not just that we would get rescued. It's not just like we walk out into the light and we're like, okay, now I'm in an unknown world by myself. Like, No, we walk out there and all of a sudden there's a family waiting there for you. And you get to walk into it And there's a seat at the table with your name on it. There's a room. There's a bed. There's a fridge you have full access to. Like You can just come into it because you have a different status now. You're a child of God. You don't have to wake up saying, oh, I think God cares for me in some generic way. Like, No, if you're his child, he cares for you in a very particular way every single day of your life and every minute of the day. He never takes his eye off of his children. This is... So presaged to, in a moment, by faith, to go from being a nobody to being a somebody. In God's eyes. To being valued, to being loved, to being welcomed. For some of us, this might feel a little more natural to receive those things. Some of us, like, we just need to, like, hear this afresh. Like, think about that. When we have a new status, we have been welcomed by God. And He doesn't pull that welcome back. Like, every single day. Just like my children who just feel free to come right into my presence. Like, God is so welcoming to all of his children. He loves to gather his children. He loves to care for his children. He loves for them to feel loved and feel welcomed and feel cared for, to feel protected. This is the life we now get to live. And the same author that wrote this gospel wrote the letters, first, second, third John. And first John chapter three, verse one, he says, see what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. This is our new status now, by faith in Jesus Christ. God wants us to see one thing more here. Before I show you it, I do want to say, there's only one thing better than being a child of God. What do you think of it? It's kind of a trick question. It's being a child of God in glory. Because right now, we have a a sense of what it means to be the children of God. We can learn a lot about what it means, but the reality is there's always going to be some form, even if our hearts are just really maturing in this age, there's always going to be a disconnect between the now and the not yet. What we are going to walk into in the age to come is going to blow our minds. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our fathers. There will not be a moment of doubt Of God's care. There'll be nothing to disrupt our endless confidence in our Heavenly Father. For now, there's many minor interruptions, but that day is going to come to an end. There's only one thing better than being a child of God it's being a child of God with a glorified body in the presence of our Savior. And that is coming very soon. Now, God wants us to see one thing more here. He wants us to see the deep reality that accounts for this change of status he wants us to see how it is that we receive the light how it is that we become christians he wants us to see why we stop and listen to the music because there's still a deeper question this is like yeah why did this person receive the light and not that person is it because this person's smarter than that person Why? What's the deeper reason or deeper reality underneath our receiving of the light? And the emphasis of this text falls not on our response to God, though it's real and it's important, like we do receive the light, but the emphasis of this text falls on what God has done in the hearts of men. Read verse 13, right? We become the children of God who were born. Not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. We were born not in a natural way, but in a supernatural way. This is ultimately going to account for why some receive the light and some do not. We're born, and it says not of, and it gives three phrases here, right? So born not of, the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And as these phrases have always just jumbled in my mind, like, what does this even mean? These verses, or these, these phrases, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. What, what do these phrases mean? Well, I think they're talking about, uh, the act of producing children, um, and how it has everything to do with human participation right? So human participation, human desires, and uh, you can say human wills, right? A man and a woman are plenty involved in bringing a child into the world. I think there is just uh, kind of a veil the kind of modesty in this text with these phrases, but I think that's what's being described here, this procreation, how it happens, the human involvement, humans are completely involved in that process. But the point is, is that what happened to you and the reason why you received the light has nothing to do with that. And it has, and it's actually very, very, very different than that. The human process of procreation, that is all marked with human involvement. But to be born of God speaks of a supernatural involvement. It wasn't ultimately you that brought it about. So, a man and a woman, generally speaking, can make a baby through their own initiative and efforts, right? But to be born of God, God is saying here that the birth that He is speaking about in verse thirteen is radically different than human birth. It has everything to do with God's participation, God's desire, and you could say um, God's will, as it says in First Peter chapter one, verse eight: "Blessed be." the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us, by according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, this birth is God-caused. This birth is something God does, God initiates. This is God's effort in bringing this about. To be born of God means to be born of the Spirit. Have you ever heard that saying? If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Have you heard that? It's true. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. So if you're born once, that means just by that physical birth, right? If that's the only way that you're born, you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically and you're going to die spiritually. That is eternally, right? But... If you're born twice, that is, if you're born physically, like all of us are, right, and born of God, born spiritually, born of the Spirit, then you're only going to die once. You're going to die a natural death, but you're going to experience an eternal life. Does that make sense? That's what's being taught here is just saying this second birth is what God brings. This is why we have life. This is why we have a new status as a child of God, and this is why we would receive the light. In other words, who gets the credit at the end of the day if we're a believer in Jesus? God took the initiative. And isn't that what this season is all about? God taking the initiative and sending forth his son to a world living in darkness so that we would see a great light. And that's what's being said here is God is taking the initiative to do a supernatural work In the heart, so that we would be his children, so that we would believe. John 3, verse 3 says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This birth must take place. So, what is, what is the new birth? What is this second birth? Just in very simple terms, it is, it is when it God cleanses and transforms, he provides a new heart and new life in the heart. You can put it this way. It's when God so transformed a heart that he makes room for Jesus. He makes room for Jesus in heart so that we're no longer hoarders by nature, but we're instead worshipers of Christ, worshipers of God, people who actually love God and want to live for God. Now, go back to that experiment from the beginning. Right? Joshua Bell experiment. Right? I think it's fascinating to just see how people respond in a situation like that. But it's interesting also to see people from a secular worldview trying to process why people wouldn't slow down for world class beauty. Why wouldn't people? Like, it just seemed, I was reading the article, very sophisticated article, and I'm just thinking, I don't think they fully grasp why people don't slow down. Like the deeper reasons why. Because in their mind, they're just like, well, to appreciate the beauty, the viewing conditions need to be more optimal, right? Like you have to have a setting, maybe like introduce this guy, dress him up a little bit. It's just like, no, no. Like maybe like in that case it would help if you did all your advertising and stuff. But when it comes to people really slowing down, really receiving Really being hospitable to Jesus in their hearts, really wanting to live for Him. The Bible teaches that we don't just need a new, you know, a few new tweaks on our viewing conditions to make things more optimal. What we need is to be born again. What we need is the gift of a new heart. We need a spiritual open heart surgery, a heart transplant. We need the heart of Christ in us. The ultimate reason behind Receiving or not receiving is God's initiative in the human heart. So we asked this morning, what does everybody need? I mean, if the light has come into the world, and this is not an experiment, and people's eternal destiny hangs on whether one receives or rejects the light, what does every single person need? Life. They need to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ in his resurrection from the dead. And so this is what we want to think about as we go in witness in the darkness over this season. Don't think that people just need a few cosmetic changes in their life. People need the new birth or they won't receive the light. They won't slow down and listen to music. They won't hear beauty for what it is. I'm no different than you. I was a darkness dweller. I need Christ. I know the only reason I would listen to that beauty is because God changed my heart and gave me ears to hear and eyes to see. I have no boast in myself. If anybody in this room boasts, we're not understanding the gospel, and we're not understanding God's initiative for sinners. And so, out of a heart of humility, knowing ourselves to once been darkness dwellers, go into the dark places over these holidays. And call people to faith in Christ. Tell them about the light. But as you do, pray like crazy that God would work the new birth in their hearts. That they would not just be born once, but that they'd be born twice so that they only die once. It's my prayer that all of us would slow down and recognize who it is that's come to us. That we wouldn't be those too busy to slow down and enjoy Jesus Christ this season. To slow down and see him for who he is. To hear the music. To linger. And to make the changes that we need to in order to do that. This is a season to not pass by without contemplating his beauty. Don't let your heart be too busy to relish Jesus Christ. And don't let your heart be too proud to recognize why you received the light to begin with. Let's pray. Thank you for that. That really fires me up. Yeah. <laughs> Rocky Balboa theme song. That's beautiful. Father, I'm so thankful to be able to call you Father. Lord, we come to you as your people, and we are humbled by your word. And we realize, Lord, that the only reason we have received the light is because you sent the light to us. And that you caused us to be born again to a living hope. That you took out our hearts of stone and you gave us hearts of flesh that actually beat for you. Lord, remember what it was like to be cold toward you. To have no real love for you. We praise you for your sovereign intervention in our lives. We praise you for not leaving us to ourselves. And Lord, it is our deep heart cry today and in this season and in this life that you would use us to bear witness to the light. Give us courage. Give us such a love for the light and appreciation for his beauty that we're not afraid to talk about him. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to slow down and enjoy Jesus in this season. Lord, we're all tempted to be so busy with things. Help us to be less like a Martha and more like a Mary, sitting at your feet, choosing the good portion in this time. Lord, I pray for those, perhaps within the hearing of my voice, that really have lived their lives as cave dwellers and they don't realize it. That they really know true things about Jesus. They even agree with them, but they've never really rested their souls upon Jesus. And their lives prove it. I pray, God, that you'd give them eyes to see that. Help them to see their sin. Help them to see that they're spiritual hoarders that have no room for Jesus right now. Help them to confess that to you. God, I pray that you would show up in power just as you say in your word that whoever comes to you, you will not cast out. I pray that you would pull them toward you with a profound welcome, even this morning. Let them not perish, Lord, being close to the kingdom but not in it, being near it, but not partakers of it. Oh Lord, help them to put on the parachute before it's too late, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we worship you, we would worship out of hearts that recognize that we have a new status. Thank you that you have, by your grace, given us the right to be called the children of God. Help us to get a sense of how secure we are I pray that we would grow in the sense of security in this life and it would overflow into the next life. We thank you, Lord, with all of our little insecurities that we feel in this life and our doubts that, that plague us. We thank you for the day that's coming where we will not doubt your fatherliness toward us anymore. We thank you that we're going to walk into your kingdom and we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Thanks be to the light of the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.